So I'm going to ask you guys to do something that I don't ask you to do. I know it's going to make people uncomfortable. I don't really care. So here is what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you guys on the wings, both sides, would you move into the center? Would you do that for me? Would you do that for me? Yes. You can even sit in my spot, Jerry. You can give me this stink eye like I give everybody else. Anyway, yes. Would you guys move into the center just so that I can look at everybody together and see, no, I don't want to see you sleeping, but that's okay. I understand. It's been a hard week. I get how that works. Ryan, you're not out of this. You just plop right in front of Dwayne there and say hi. Anyway, so here, here's the reason why I'm doing this. One of the big pieces of this message today is that I dealt with forgiveness last week, and it's been a week full of conversations, a week full of text messages and phone calls, uh, and often tears and things like that, dealing with the issues of forgiveness, right? Um, how many of you just think forgiveness is the easiest thing you've ever done in your life? That's my point, right? It's very difficult. It's a hard thing to walk in. It's a hard thing to, to do. Um, as C.S. Lewis said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea. That is until we have to practice it. And, and then it's like, oh, I don't want to forgive people, right? Okay, so, so it's been that kind of week. And we're going to go into step number two of this message. And in step number two... I'm going to be talking to you like I always do, but I'm going to be asking questions, and I expect you guys to respond to me. This way I don't have to listen out here and out here. I just get to listen right here. So, awesome. So what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about reconciliation part two. Why? Because we came off this story in Joseph's story where he reconciled, he's reconciled and he forgives his brothers, and it became this really clear thing that we need to focus on it because it's a challenge, right? Amen? Like forgiveness, so it's a big challenge. So we're going to do this. The disclaimer I gave last week is the disclaimer I'm going to give this week. And that is, I am not talking to the person you're thinking of that needs to ask for forgiveness. I'm talking to you, okay? I'm just, I'm just talking to you, okay? And I'm talking to myself, and I'm wrestling through this stuff, okay? So... As we work through this, I want you to be thinking about what you have to do with this. Not only is forgiveness a weighty reality and a hard concept, but it comes with a cost. And that's the particulars that we're going to be talking about today. The cost associated with forgiveness. And we have to be willing to pay that cost, okay? So in the scripture, Jesus talks about this, uh, this story about uh, following him, or he, he gives this invitation to follow him, and he says that following him requires a steep cost, and then he gives these examples of what it means to weigh the cost. He says, if you're going to build a tower, does, anyone's, uh, does anyone just kind of do that without a plan? No, they sit down first, they calculate the cost, they see if they have enough to complete it, otherwise... They're going to lay a foundation, get a couple things started, it's going to look like a mess, and people are going to mock them. Same thing with a king going out to war. You do not set out for war if you have not first seen the battlefield ahead and realize what you're engaging with. Otherwise, you're, you're a dead man walking, right? You're making a mistake. So very important things. Everything we're going to talk about right now has to do with or has to do with the cost that you're going to pay. 
right? Okay, so let's recap from last week and some key definitions. Forgiveness is giving up or letting go completely. Giving up or letting go completely. And it signifies the release, if possible, of negative feelings. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. Uh, Of resentment. This is one of the costs that is going to be heavy. You're going to let go of resentment. The desire for retaliation that is associated with the offense that was, that was done or the wrongdoing that was done, okay? So think about that real quickly, giving up or letting go. Reconciliation is uh, to bring back together or to reestablish a sense of unity. Now, that means something in particular, and it doesn't mean a lot of things that we've made it mean, so we'll, we'll nuance it. It means to agree after a period of separation or disagreement, uh, and sometimes that, that that can be to agree to disagree, agree to accept that you hold different views or different ways of things. Uh, the word, both forgiveness and the word reconciliation, reflect a process. This is so important, guys. It is a process. I, I shared last week that repentance and reconciliation both mirror the mechanics of sanctification. How many of you know when you come to Jesus, you're not perfect? You better raise your daggone hand, right? You're not perfect, but you are walking in that journey. You're getting better every day. This is why Christians shouldn't be as judgmental towards each other as we are, because if we understand it correctly, we realize we're people. We're trying to look more like Jesus. Transformation takes time. It's ugly, whatever. And we get there over over a period of time. So we're talking about forgiveness, process. Reconciliation, a process. A key component that we talked about last week and defined that is vital is the, the component of repentance. And to define that very quickly, repentance is not apologizing. Okay? Repentance is turning around. A turning around. If you were marching in this direction and you say, I was wrong, which direction should you be going? The direction that is right, right? And so for a simple analogy, turn it around and get your, get your direction correctly, uh, correct. So here's what I want you to understand. Repentance is not a prerequisite to forgiveness. If somebody never repents, it does not change the fact that your heart and your mind are supposed to be forgiving hearts and minds. How do I know this? Because before anyone repented of what they had done to our King and Savior Jesus, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why would he expect that? Why would he do that if he didn't expect that? As a, as a possibility, right? So forgiveness is not contingent on repentance. So repentance is not a prerequisite for forgiveness, but, and hear me clearly, both forgiveness and repentance are prerequisites for reconciliation. Both are prerequisites in order to walk together any, any longer. Why would that be? Okay, let's go back to the car analogy that I shared last week. I, I told you that, in, it were, uh, that forgiveness represents the inflation in the car tires, okay? And reconciliation is getting in that car and, and being on a journey, okay? Being on a journey together. If you have flat tires, how easy is it going to be to get up a hill in ice and sleet and snow? It's not, you're not going to get anywhere. 
right? Sometimes even with full tires, you're going to be spinning, right? So get good tires is the moral. Anyway, so, so the idea is if you have flat tires, you have no hope. You can't actually get where you want to go. So forgiveness is required. And once forgiveness is required, we can make this journey. But if forgiveness is not there, we can't move. And if repentance is not there, you're driving this way. And what direction is the person that you're trying to reconcile with going? The opposite way. You think that's going to make for much of a journey? Not unless they want their arms and legs pulled off, right? So it's, so it's really important that we're moving in the same direction. So both forgiveness and reconciliation are um, intricately uh, tied together. So what do we do when reconcilia- reconciliation is or seems impossible or unwanted? This is where we get into the specifics of things, okay? Um, Well, it depends on which party you're in. How many of you have been offenders in a relationship? How many of you are offending me right now by lying to me? Yes, thank you. I knew it. Barney, number one, right? So that's really important, right? So depends on where you are in the story. So here's an idea that I wanted to spell. You've all heard this statement. They say, there's my truth, there's your truth, and then... There's the real truth. That is not always the case. That is not always the case. And here is why that's not always the case. Because the way we do things, we look for generalizations. We, we love generalities in our world, right? We want things to be simple and smooth. And here's what people who don't want to repent often say. Well, there's your truth, and there's my truth, and then there's the real truth. Do you know what they've just done? They've abdicated any responsibility. No, uh, no, no, no. There's the way I see it, and there's the way you see it, and that's fine. Then there's the truth. That's fine. No, there are times when that is true. There's a time when you have a perspective, they have a perspective, and then there's a truth. There are times when there is your story, and it is true, and their story is false, and they need to repent. How many of you know that this is the case? How many of you know that when you call somebody out on that, it's really difficult? Because you say, no, actually the story is you did this and it was hurtful and you hurt everybody in our lives and you need to repent. And they go, there's your truth, there's my truth, and then there's somewhere in the real story. No, it's a cop-out, okay? There's also times where there's your truth, then there's their real truth, and you're wrong. How many of you know that? Yes, how many of you have been wrong in this room? (laughs) <laughs> okay, I've never been wrong. Anyway, right, right. Yeah. I'm just going to make a I'm just going to make a comment that this is the way my mind thinks. The absence of people in those wings proves that <laughs> I have made many mistakes. Anyways, right. So, but here here is the point, guys. There is there is time when a statement like there is your truth, my truth and there's the real truth is true. There's times when your truth is the truth and the other person is wrong. And there's a point when they're right and you're wrong. And if you don't accept that those can be possibilities, we're never going to get anywhere. Okay? We're never actually going to get anywhere. So this often has to do with perspective. So back to what happens when reconciliation is impossible. Some people are unrepentant. What's required for reconciliation? Come on. Forgiveness and repentance, right? You have to have both of those to have reconciliation. So sometimes reconciliation is not possible because people aren't repentant. And sometimes you're not forgiving 
Just think about this. Those things are what make true reconciliation impossible. Some people don't want to reconcile, remember the car analogy, that is to get in the car with you and travel in a direction. Some people are unwilling to jump in that car, not because they haven't forgiven you, but sometimes because they're ashamed of their actions and they just can't come back together. Have you ever had that in your life? Where somebody acted so foolishly that when you re-engage with them, they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm, I, I'm a piece of nothing. And then they, they just don't want anything to do with the conversation or the relationship. That's a possibility, guys. So every time somebody doesn't want to reconcile with you, it's not always a lack of repentance. It's not always a lack of forgiveness. It could be that they're deeply ashamed of their past. You need to consider that when it comes to uh, hindrances to reconciliation. Some people are just unwilling to do something, right? They don't want to turn around. They may be sorry for what they've done, but they don't want to travel anymore with you. That's a possibility. That can be a boundary, and that can be legitimate and have forgiveness and reconciliation as a thing. Some people are so shamed by the person that has forgiven them, air quotes, so shamed by the, th- the person that has forgiven them that they actually can't do it. Now, I need to make this very clear. When you are a person who forgives, do you know what, you, what cost you pay? You give up the right for retaliation. Indefinitely. Listen to me. If you have forgiven your husband or forgiven your wife, you have relinquished the right to attack them again for that issue. Otherwise, it's not actual forgiveness. You're just dragging the stuff back up, rubbing their nose in the doo-doo, right? You know, this is, this is what we're doing, okay? Problem in this. Also, listen to me, repentance, when you are truly a repentant person, and this might be a heavier cost than any of us are willing to pay, true repentance gives up the right to close a door permanently and never deal with the wounds that you caused by your actions. If you have a person that you have physically, mentally, sexually, emotionally abused, and you say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, and they come back and say, there is a wound that you created in me that I need to talk out, I need to talk it out a lot, I need to explore it and understand it, and your response is, are you bringing back up the past? Do you keep a record of wrong? Are you just trying to hold, me, hold this against me? Then you haven't actually repented. Repentance surrenders the right for that person to, close, to, to not bring those things back up. And that is where it gets really, really sticky inside of forgiveness and reconciliation. There are many people whose, whose lives... Uh, whose journey is a journey of forgiveness, a journey of reconciliation, but they're wrestling with having to sweep under the rug the hurts and the wounds and the pains that they're still dealing with. How many of you have gone through a relationship where you have deep scars? You have deep scars. What happens when you bring those scars back up? What happens? Give me some answers. 
It hurts. You bring the scars back up. What happens in the response, guys? Obviously, scars and wounds hurt. What happens when you go to the person who wounded you and say, I want to talk through this? What happens? Say again. Defense. That is a very common one. Okay? Defense and an argument. Guess what those are signs of? Those are signs that they actually haven't fully forgiven. Or that the process of forgiveness is difficult for them. Can you accept that? You can't accept that. It's going to happen. What else? What happens when you bring up the wounds that you've endured over time? Anger. Anger. Frustration. What else? Pain. Okay. Questions, right? What else? Any good things? Why is everybody hard-pressed to discover, to articulate a good thing when you bring that up? Because what I've told you is true. (laughs) What I've told you is true. When we start to work through wounds, the predisposed idea or the preloaded idea that we have of forgiveness is forgive, forget, it's washed away, there's no process, there's no journey in it, it's all done, and the second you bring it up, it's arguments, it's fights, it's raising voices, it's defense. But why aren't there the good things? Because people struggle to truly forgive. And you do too. You do too. You struggle to repent as well. I do as well. These are challenges that we are facing inside of this journey of forgiveness and reconciliation. So again, forgiveness gives up the right to repay. If I have forgiven Bob Girding for the violation against me that he commits all the time, Right? Right? I wouldn't have said that. (laughs) Right? You kind of get it tongue in cheek there. Right? I I don't bring it back up. I don't hold it over their head. I don't have a, 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 a thing on the refrigerator door that says, just remember to be pissed off at that person today. I don't have that. I don't have that. Now, listen, repentance though also gives up the right to close a door, to seal it forever, and not deal with the aftermath of what you've created. I'm sorry, and I won't do it again, does not heal wounds. Healing wounds heals wounds. That takes conversations, that takes time, that takes all these different things. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at even deeper and more practical steps to forgiveness and reconciliation. Throughout this message, right, we're going to talk about specifics, so I need you to track with me as we go along. Let's first deal with what the leading psychological models actually understand uh, about forgiveness and reconciliation. Here's what I want you to, to, to notice in this. The leading psychological models are all proving that God's word has always been true. So every Christian that goes, ooh, pop psychology, ooh, psychology, I don't know about worldly psychology, you've not listened long enough to realize they're just saying the same thing God said for thousands of years, okay? Just pay attention, it's amazing. Okay, so the first one is a model that's called the REACH model. It was uh, introduced originally in 2001 by Everett Worthington and a couple of his colleagues, and REACH is an acronym, and it stands for this, recall the hurt, 
How many of you know that any kind of reconciliation and forgiveness means you have to think about the past? What are they forgiving? What are you apologizing for if you don't talk about it, right? Nobody leaves it vague. So they recall the past, recall the hurt. The second word is empathize with the one who hurt you. Look at the cost right now. If you have been hurt in a profound way, how easy is it for you to empathize with the one who hurt you? You're like, no, <laughs> I don't need to empathize. Nobody needs to empathize with them. They just need to be better. Actually, you need to understand that you're a person. I was talking to uh, Steph this week, and we were discussing the model of empathizing with the one who hurt you, and there were some issues in her life at one point where she went to a counselor, and uh, the counselor asked her a question. They said, how old was the person that hurt you at this point in time? And she said, she was 19 years old, and the counselor goes, so was she like Above every other 19-year-old, you know, was she able to not hurt people? Was she, like, do you have a better perspective when you realize this person is actually uh, younger than you are now while you're dealing with the hurt? They were younger than you are now when they caused the hurt? See, empathizing with somebody who hurts you might mean that you have to take on the perspectives of that person. Find out why they might have done what they've done. Now, there is not always a good reason. Sometimes the reason is because people are evil and do evil things, but it is largely unlikely you're dealing with a psychopath that doesn't, you know, that doesn't think about anything they're doing and just acts harmfully towards people. Most of the time, there's an action, and the action is caused by a myriad of other things, okay? Jordan Peterson talks about a counseling session in which he dealt with a young woman who was sexually abused when she was a child, four years old. And when he talked to her about this situation, uh, she had this very evil view and very bad view of men. And she was abused by an individual that was of the male gender. And so she has this view of him. And, and Jordan Peterson asked her, how old was this man? And she said, well, he was my older brother. He was six years old when I was four. And all Jordan Peterson said to her was this. He said, now this isn't a solution for everything, but hear out what the logic of this. He looked at her and he said, to a four-year-old, a six-year-old might look like an adult. But to an adult, a six-year-old is what? And the girl goes, a kid. And from that point on, she completely changed. Why? Because the empathy with her offender was a kid did this to a kid. It was a kid. Is that justify the action? No. But it does make sense that a kid is not going to think like a 40-year-old adult. Does that make sense? So it's really important when we talk about empathizing, we need to look at the person who has hurt us. In the Christian world, we are always looking to understand our neighbor and to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We're always looking to figure this stuff out. Popular psychological method, but it's just following exactly what the Bible would call us to do. So we recall the hurt, we, emphasize with the one who hurt, or we empathize with the one who hurt us. Then there's this altruistic gift of forgiveness, which no popular psychologist actually understands. It's just like 
let it go, <laughs> right? And then, so that's altruistic, the A in reach. And then we've got commit to forgive. But watch this. Commit to forgive. What is that? It's a choice, right? Commit to do it. And then the final uh, step in this, commit to forgive and hold on to forgiveness. Do you realize what you have to do to maintain forgiveness? Keep holding on. It's a process. Sanctification. It is not one and done. You are not done with it. What's going to happen is you're going to forgive somebody, and then the next morning, you're going to wake up, and you're going to rethink everything that has happened to you, and you go, I'm not really sure I wanted to offer that forgiveness. But then you're going to know that that's what God has called you to, and you're going to commit to it again, and you're going to deepen your understanding of it. You're going to commit to it again, and you're going to deepen your understanding of it. Do you imagine Joseph forgave his brothers and just was like, yeah, that whole selling into slavery thing, not that big of a deal. I would guess the next Christmas he might have brought it up, right? <laughs> Little slight into the conversation. I don't know, but that's just how most people work, right? So the reach model is this, and it just shows what we've already experienced inside the Christian life. The second one is in Wright's forgiveness process model. Uh, this was uh, discovered or this was created in 1996 by Robert Enright and here's his idea number one uncovering what do you have to do you have to deal with the stuff okay you have to know what you're forgiving you have to know what you're repenting for all of that number two you have to make a decision a decision to what forgive walk in reconciliation whatever it is then his model goes uncovering decision work because that's what forgiveness truly is work, and deepening. You have to work, and you have to work deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into forgiveness. You know what that's going to require? It's going to require you going back to the person that you've forgiven, that has repented, and you're going to go back to them to walk in reconciliation and say, I have some wounds I need to talk about. And if they're unwilling to have that discussion, guess what they're struggling with? Actual repentance. They're actually struggling with what they said they have done. And you need to work through that, right? Okay, so this is really important. Now, you have po positive psychology and forgiveness. And uh, positive psychology just highlights forgiveness as a key component to well-being. But it doesn't ever provide any kind of real steps to it. It just tells us, hey, this is good for your soul. How many of you know forgiveness is good for your soul? Yeah. It's just hard to do, right? And these other models go into things like the role of empathy and, and the health benefits of all of this, restorative justice in the context of forgiveness, restorative justice practices, uh, practices have gained a lot of attention lately, and restorative justice aims to repair the harm that is caused by the wrongdoing while promoting reconciliation. That's what God has called us to do. But that's what we've been talking about for the past two weeks now. Restorative justice says we've got to repair the harm. We've got to work on the wounds that were caused. That means we've got to focus on them. We've got to discuss them. We've got to make plans to work through these ideas. There's a lot of cost to pay in all this because it's not easy. It's work no matter what you do. There's also the role in, in uh, modern psychology, the role of therapy. There's a thing called forgiveness therapy, uh, and it's an approach in mental health or through mental health professionals that they actually help individuals work through forgiveness-related issues. You know where that model came from? Iron sharpening iron, right? 
Christians walking this out with each other and going, listen, I know forgiveness is hard. Let's try to walk it out together. But what we often do is just go, it's too difficult. Forget this stuff, right? Forgiveness is something we should all be walking in together. So it's important to note that forgiveness is a highly individual thing, but it is less subjective than one might think. All of these models talk about the same thing. You've got to uncover a reality, you've got to give the forgiveness, you've got to work at it, and you've got to keep working at it. All of them echo the same exact ideas. So while psychological models and research provide valuable insights, uh, forgiveness may not always be achievable based on something within you. But it is not based on repentance, as I've said before. You are called to walk in this forgiveness. Now, here's where I think we run amok in the church. And we think that forgiveness as Christians should just be easy. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Raise your hands if it's, still, if it's now easy for you. It's, it's not easy to forgive even with God on your side. It's not easy to obey God, and he's the one prompting you all the time. Because we're people, we make decisions. And so this is, this is just a challenge that we're all going to have to face all the days of our life. Psychologists continue to explore forgiveness from various angles. They like to contribute to our understanding uh, with, you know, with... Uh, medicines that they feel will help change kind of chemicals in our brain that work towards this or uh, by methods that we can take that will that will change our uh, our hearts towards the situation because we take actions because we we have this belief that if you if you do it something will change inside of your inside of your mind and your heart and there may be some truth to that but it's going to take work no matter what so the next thing that i want to look at are are uh some practical helps inside of all of this. And this is where the specifics come in. So let's deal with problem solving. Uh, the strategy of problem solving inv involves identifying the problem, right? What are we doing? We're uncovering, brainstorming potential solutions, and then taking practical steps to address the issue. This is extremely effective, but what does it require? It requires opening the door back up, looking at the scars and looking at the mess and being able to talk about that. Who is going to be resistant to this? The people who are truly not repentant, right? But this is what's required. And so if you're going to problem solve and you won't actually deal with the real issues, how good are you going to be at solving the problem? Not very good. So you have to uncover this stuff. And when you uncover it, it gets really dirty really quickly. So let's say you're in, a, you're in a marriage and you are abused in some fashion and you truly want to walk in forgiveness. You want to walk in forgiveness. And let's just say that your spouse has come to you and they have repented, they've apologized, but they've also repented. The action that they once uh, did towards you is no longer at play in the relationship. This is gone now. Okay, it's just for the sake of this analogy, let's just deal with physical abuse. They were hitting you, and now they have stopped hitting you, okay? And they're truly repentant. Problem solving means coming back to the table and saying, I need to talk about some of the things that have hurt me in the way you attacked me in the past. 
I want to talk to you about why I still flinch when something happens. I need to talk to you about your aggressive voice or tone of voice or the way you act physically as an intimidating figure towards our children because it causes all these red flags. And the person that is repentant has to be willing to say, how can I change? How can I work at this? How can I move forward with you? And this conversation enables problem solving. It enables us to deepen the situation and understand what we can do. Emotional expression is another one. Expressing emotions in a healthy way, such as through talking with a friend, writing a journal, engaging in creative activities. Something that is important for all of us to recognize is that God has wired each one of us differently. And there are, main, there, there are large buckets that we all fall into, but we're wired differently. So for, for an example, I'm a person that likes to extrovertedly think, okay? This is in cognitive uh, ideals, it's called uh, extroverted thinking or TE. And so I like, to, I like to reason out things as I'm talking. It's just a fun thing to do. How many of you would say you're like me in that? To reason things out when you're talking. How many of you like to sit down with a piece of paper, put all your thoughts on the paper first, make sure they make any kind of sense at all before you'll ever show it to any other human being? Jacob, raise your dang hand, right? <laughs> right? Okay, so that, that would be called T-I, okay? So here's a really important thing. As you're working through emotional expressions, if you're a person that extroverts your thinking and you're working through your emotions with a person that has repented for their actions and you have forgiven them, but you're working through those emotions and you are going as fast as lightning, right? You're throwing out all these ideas that have wounded you emotionally and expressively, right? And you're sharing this stuff. Don't be surprised if they are so overwhelmed, they freak the heck out, right? But don't interpret their freak out as them not willing to listen, Ask them if you can do this for a period of time and then take a pause, right, and then come back to it. We, we have to work on these kinds of systems. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of costs to pay in true forgiveness, but you have to work through it, okay? So you might be this extroverted thinker. You might be a TI person, and the person that is across the table from you is going, can you just tell me how I've wounded you? Can you just express it? And that person's like, I don't have words for it. Let me think. And they might take weeks, years. It might take so long you actually think the issue is gone and then they drop a journal on you, right? And then you're like, whoa, where'd this come from? Here's my instruction to you or my, my coaching to you. Take a deep breath. They've just now finally been able to articulate it and you need to work through that piece by piece. Work through every emotional expression that these people have because they're real and they feel everything that they're talking about. Mindfulness is another one. Meditation. Okay, I know Christians are like, this is kind of freaky stuff. Quit making things freaky that aren't freaky. The Bible itself tells us that we are to meditate on his word day and night. Now, I don't want you to meditate on weird stuff, but I do want you to be mindful, which is a practice that says you need to be present in a moment. Uh, also, by meditating on what God would have you do, because when you do it that way, when you meditate on what God would have you do, you actually begin the working process of true forgiveness or true reconciliation. It takes 
effort. So if God says, I want you to love them anyway, you need to meditate and say, the Lord told me to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor, even if that neighbor is my husband, even if that neighbor is my wife, to love them as myself. I need to love them as myself. I need to love them as myself. You're meditating on this principle. And then you begin to walk in it because that's the real order. If you get it here, it starts to come out here, okay? So you need to work on mindfulness practices or or meditation, meditating on God's word day and night. It will change who you are. Physical activity, though, this is so interesting. You might say, well, uh, I want to know practical things that work between me and that person. Take some time off from that person and work things through physically so that when you come back, maybe your aggression and maybe your attitude is all beat out of you because you've done something physical. I practice jujitsu. I do it constantly now. I'm, I'm at the gym as much as I possibly can. I also have a place at my house where I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? Because quite honestly, there is a lot of anger built up in me. I'll just leave it at that. So, so the idea is you have to express that. Now that shouldn't be a warning to anybody doing jujitsu with me. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna break you. I promise, right? But what it does is it improves, it improves my mood, it improves my health, it's improved a lot of things for me. Uh, so that I can come back to the table and talk in a way that is uh, calm or helpful to people, right? Um, a, a next one, uh, another one is learning how to freaking relax. When a person that has hurt you comes into the room, what happens to you? If the answer is you tense up and you're ready to go, you've got to learn how to take a deep breath. You've got to learn how to relax. And if you think, what's this have to do with the Bible? It has to do with the Bible because it has to do with you and God loves you. Just learn to relax. Learn to take a deep breath. Learn to look at a situation and say, there is a human that is across the table from me that bears the image of God, and I need to treat them as such. That's hard to do, guys. Sometimes you're going to need guided imagery for that or maybe music for that. Whatever it is, take the time to do that. Another practical step is to actually seek support. This is, uh, gosh, this is so important. Talk to friends, talk to family members, go to a mental health professional. Cases of severe uh, distress, mental health conditions, trauma, you need to seek assistance from a therapist. As I said last week, not all therapists are created equal. And so you need to find one that actually listens to you. You need to find one that actually is going to work with you and move you towards something. If you've gone through sexual abuse, if you've gone through the, the, uh, the uh, uh, abandonment of a partner, if you've gone through uh, the loss of a loved one in a catastrophic way or a traumatic way, you, you should work through this with somebody that is a professional. You should. These are issues that are so traumatic that it is a common story to hear that people take their own life after going through that because they feel helpless and they feel no one is listening to them. It is, it is not good to be in that despair and not reach for help, right? And so it's important to seek some support. 
Cognitive restructuring is another example. So I talk about TE and TI. We can talk about a lot of other things. The strategy is one that involves identifying and challenging negative thought patterns, right? There are things in us that, that drive us towards negativity, right? We need to address those things and try to reframe. Address those things and try to shift back to a more positive way of looking at things. I know some of you, I've, I've been given the look before by you guys and you're like, psycho babble. It actually works. It works. Trust me, it works. So it's, it's, these are important uh, methods that we could use. Um, humor is another way to work through some of this stuff. I don't recommend laughing at the person that you're dealing with, right? But, but humor is a very important thing because laughter is a natural stress reliever. The chemicals that are released in your body through laughter are amazing for changing and transforming your mood, right? So these are important things. Uh, last but surely not least is spirituality or faith, right? Um, uh, a walk with Jesus does not make the trauma you've experienced easy to handle. But it gives you a worldview and a framework in which you actually start to trust, um, you start to trust uh, uh, strategies and tools that are given to you by that religion or by that faith. And in Christianity, you are given the strategies and the tools to even love your enemy. In Christianity, you are given the strategies to actually lay down your life for somebody who has hurt you and violated you and oppressed you. We live in a world where people are just unbelievably overwhelmed by the offense and the, and the chaos that is, that is caused upon them. And Jesus actually would look at that offense and that chaos and still be willing to die for it. And Christians just adopt the world's perspective and go, how dare you? People are people. They're going to hurt you. But what you are called to do is walk in a way that is far more transcendent than this world, right? Loving enemies, praying for those who persecute you. I say this all the time. This is what we're called to do. So remember that coping strategies are not one size fits all. I told you last week we would go, we would go to each, each detail. None of this is one size fits all. Everything requires nuance, if something works for Barney, it might not work for Jerry. It's okay. But we need to look at those, those things and be willing to try them. It's often helpful to experiment with different strategies. Find ones that are most effective for you. But what is the goal? Don't, for, don't confuse the complexity of a strategy or the challenges that you face with the actual goal. The strategy may be, may be complex and the goal may be complex, but the goal must be pressed towards it is forgiveness and reconciliation. It is washing those things away. It is seeking somebody, seeking repentance if you're the offender, getting repentance from the other one, and walking with them on this new journey of life, okay? In whatever capacity you're in. If you were married to somebody 20 years ago, and that divorce is a mess, and it's created chaos in your life, reconciliation does not mean going back and getting married again. Reconciliation means learning how to walk in this life with that person as they exist now, okay? And it might mean that you don't go out and have coffee together, fine, but it means learning to walk in this life with that person now, what's going on now. There are many uh, relationships that I know of, uh, husbands and wives, where the, the reconciliation is two parents that now... Uh, 
separately co-parent their children in a loving fashion. That might be your reconciliation, but it doesn't mean you have to be buddy buddies. It just means that you recognize that person, you love that person, you, you see the image of God in them, and you let them live their life, and you live your life in a good way, okay? There is another thing that I, I know that I've gone over. Barney laughed at me when he saw my timer this morning, but he's like 36 minutes, my eye. Anyway, so, um, so I, I'm going to go over, uh, it's got to go over just a little bit more because I want to talk to you about a principle in psychology called uh, affiliative defense. Affiliative defense. An affiliation defense in psychology refers to a coping mechanism, a defense mechanism that individuals employ to actually protect themselves, whether it's their own esteem or their worth or their identity or their approval, belongingness, whatever it is. They, they seek to protect themselves. And they do so from a particular group or affiliation. Okay, um, in, a, uh, in psychology, it's a strategy where a person aligns themselves with a specific group or organization that, that reestablishes that sense of self-worth, that, that sense of um, uh, security or, uh, or protection that they need, okay? I was talking to a woman after church last week uh, in the, the message on forgiveness and reconciliation, and she was broken because she's endured Hell, she's endured some really challenging situations as of late, and she's walking through this, and she, she is trying with everything she's got, but she, she practices what is called affiliative defense without even knowing it's a thing. It's literally getting together with a group of people that have gone through the same thing that you've gone through so that those people can help you. This is actually what Christians are made to do, church. You struggle Let's say you're going through grief. What should you do? Grief share. Bob Girding has already talked about it. Why? Because you can't do this alone. Forgiveness. We should have something called forgiveness share, right? We should have something called reconciliation share. Why? Because these are challenging issues and we're called to walk in them together. But none of these things are as simple as a storybook of Joseph meeting his brothers and everything's harmony and happy again. What it is instead is a lifetime of working and deepening your understanding of both forgiveness and reconciliation. It will never stop if that's your true aim. So affiliative defense in psychology, again, aligns yourself with a community. For example, someone who has experienced rejection or criticism in their personal life, they might seek validation in a sense and a sense of belonging by affiliating strongly with a particular social group or a religious organization. That's actually what the church does in one way, right? Or a community. They may derive a significant portion of their own esteem from membership inside of that group. There are people at my gym that the way they talk about the gym is more loving and more affectionate than I've heard any Christian talk about the church. Why is that? It's not that Christians don't think that way. It's just the way they express it is this group is what gives me meaning and life and joy and peace. And they tell everybody about it. You guys do the same thing with the clubs you're involved with. Like, man, there's this group of guys that I get together with, and we golf, and you talk about it like it's the greatest thing in the world, and then when it comes to the church, you're like, I don't know about those people, right? <laughs> I mean, I get it, you know, I get it, but it's not, 
it's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be here and we're supposed to be growing because we've found people that actually can work uh, through things with us together and we can become stronger, right? So religious organizations are an example. They, uh, they, they give us uh, a better understanding of our esteem. They give us a better understanding of, of what it means to be safe, all of those things. Affiliative defense can sometimes lead to behaviors that are not good. During the pandemic, when people felt disenfranchised and people felt uh, that they weren't listened to, they practiced this without knowing it was a thing. Affiliative defense. They gathered together in mobs and they raided cities. Now, was that smart? No, but it's a normal human mechanism. You gather together with people so you feel stronger. It's the person who's gone through this kind of stuff that stays isolated that ends up taking their own life. They need a defense mechanism. They need a a group. They need people to come together and be beside. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So why do I bring affiliative defense up for you guys? Because forgiveness is hard. Reconciliation is difficult. They are going to take the rest of your life to work through, and you're not going to be able to do it alone. You're not going to be able to do it alone. You need to raise your hand and go, I need some help. You need to be able to look to your brother or sister, to your right or to your left, and say, can we have coffee this week? Because life sucks right now. And guess what? When you don't do it, when you refuse to entrust your issues to someone and to walk through it, what will happen is that you will continue to grow in the, in the direction you're already traveling. If you, are de- if you are traveling in a negative direction and you do not get somebody to pull you up, you will keep going into that pit. And then what happens is what I brought up last week. You will grow in a sense of bitterness and resentment towards people who aren't the problem. Instead, what you should do is find somebody that can help you. Jesus tells us, we are not able to help ourselves out of a pit. We need a brother. We need a sister who says, come on. That's what we're here for. That's what the church should be. So in some sense, this is another vision casting moment. Because if you want to know what it means to learn to become a family in Christ Jesus, it literally means to learn to walk beside each other through forgiveness and through reconciliation, no matter how ugly and dirty and messy that journey is. That's what we're called to do. And it's going to require everybody, because you know how many people I can meet with every week? A limited number, right? Sometimes it's negative, (laughs) right? How many people this week? Negative two. I can't take it anymore, right? But the idea is if we're all together and we're all walking through it, We can all grow together. We can all build each other up. It's funny that Joseph is brought back into a family in reconciliation. Now, they were a piece of work family, but he's brought back into a family, and then they can grow together. That's what we're all called to do. Psychologists study this affiliative defense to understand how individuals cope with threats uh, to every facet of their life. And it's an important thing to recognize. We all need to be... uh, we all need to embrace the, the, the family, the people that we have around us. So listen, whether it's betrayal of a friend, whether it's family strife, whether what you've endured in your life are personal insults or past wounds, mental abuse, physical abuse, whether you are currently in a relationship with a narcissist or you're a narcissist, right, which you would never admit, so anyway, right, but... <clears throat> 
right, whether you're in these situations um, or not, the challenge, the challenge before you is to walk in forgiveness, to walk in reconciliation, to get the help you need to do it, and there's a thousand strategies to employ, a thousand strategies to employ. But the first one I think you should do is you should get help. Talk to a person. Sit with another. Don't try to do this on your own. Amen?